0: Two films,
1: one theme. This is Words and Movies.
0: Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. In the movie version of High Fidelity, which we'll be discussing in a future episode, Rob, a record store owner, played by John Cusack, finds out to his consternation that his girlfriend, Laura, played by Ibn Jel, likes both Marvin Gaye and Art Garfunkel. And he says to her, saying you like both Marvin Gaye and Art Garfunkel is saying, is like saying that you're rooting for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now that statement is so outrageous. I don't know even where to begin, although I should say that when he's singing with Paul Simon, I like Art Garfunkel as well as Marvin Gaye. However, it is, to paraphrase a line from My Cousin Vinny, a dead-on balls-accurate portrayal of a certain kind of fan. Now, of course, this is not exclusive to music. You also find this in film, where people are critics and fans are so insistent on setting up boundaries between certain films, saying you can like one or you can like the other. It's a moral imperative. But while I am not a centrist in many ways anymore in my life, I am often one when it comes to art. So I say, hey, you can like both. And we're going to be doing a series of episodes on movies where there have been skirmishes between critics and or fans on the two films and i say on all the films we'll be talking about in this series you can like both we'll see if claude agrees uh but we're starting this episode off with what i consider to be the granddaddy of these feuds and that is between two westerns, from 1952, High Noon, directed by Fred Zinnemann, and from 1959, Rio Bravo, directed by Howard Hawks. Now, to be fair, there is a reason why there's somewhat of an enmity between the fan camps of either of these movies. Namely, that Rio Bravo was made in response to High Noon. But we're going to get into all that when we discuss Rio Bravo. For now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for High Noon.
0: I sure am. We are in the New Mexico territory sometime after the uh, Civil War. And we open up with a trio of outlaws meeting up outside the town of Hadleyville while Tex Ritter sings the plot of the movie. And I hope you like that song because you're going to hear it throughout the film. They are Ben Miller, Jim Pierce, and Jack Colby, played respectively by Sheb Woolley, Robert Wilkie, and Lee Van Cleef in his film debut. As they ride into town, they are being given the side-eye by all the residents who clearly know who they are, and they recognize their arrival as trouble a Bruin. The trio stops at the train depot, and they ask whether the noon train is expected to be on time. Meanwhile, the town marshal, Will Kane, is getting married at the Justice of the Peace. Kane, who is played by Gary Cooper, is marrying Amy, played by Grace Kelly. Per his wife's wishes, Kane is giving up the marshal life to marry her, and as they're congratulated by the town's mayor and the prior marshal, played respectively by Thomas Mitchell and Lon Chaney Jr., word gets to them that Frank Miller has been pardoned. Miller was arrested and sentenced to hang five years earlier, but his sentence was commuted to life, and now he's been pardoned. Nobody knows why, but the pieces are coming together. Frank Miller is going to be on the noon train and his first order of business is going to be killing kane it's about ten thirty a.m and so they don't have a lot of time to get out of town but get out of town they do however kane and amy aren't on the road but a few minutes when he suddenly turns his buckboard around and heads back to town uh, he tells her he can't run from his past furthermore they're likely to just spend the rest of their lives on the run from miller Besides, the new marshal won't arrive until the next day, and that means that the town will be defenseless against Miller. Amy tells him that his responsibility is done, and as a Quaker, she can't countenance his staying behind just to kill somebody. In short, she'll be getting on the noon train and leaving town, and if he's not on it with her, she's leaving anyway. It's about this point that the film shifts into something very close to real time. Uh, Kane meets up with the judge who sentenced Miller, and it turns out he's packing up and getting ready to leave too, and he advises Kane to do the same. Kane's deputy, Harvey Pell, who is played by Lloyd Bridges, comes in. We learn that Harvey was passed over to replace Kane, and Harvey thinks Kane has something to do with it. Specifically, he thinks that Kane is angry because Harvey is dating Helen Ramirez, with whom Kane had a relationship sometime in the past. However, he's willing to help Kane if Kane recommends him for the job. Kane declines and Harvey quits altogether. Mrs. Ramirez, who is played by Katie Jurado, is also planning to leave town because she also has a past with Miller before she had one with Kane. She makes a deal to sell the saloon that she owns and get on the noon train. Amy has already purchased her ticket and, at the station master's suggestion, is waiting in the hotel lobby for the train to come. Ben Miller goes into the saloon to get a bottle of whiskey that he can drink while waiting for the train, and as he exits, he and Kane cross paths and they spend a moment glaring at each other. Kane goes into the saloon and asks for volunteers to help him, but none is forthcoming. Kane's next step is the church, where he interrupts services to ask for help. This launches a debate among the parishioners, and it's a tug of war between civic duty and cynicism. Kane starts to realize that he might actually be alone in this and he leaves. He visits the former marshal and again is rebuffed, largely because he feels he's too old and wouldn't be of any use. Back at the hotel, Amy gets curious and goes upstairs to see Mrs. Ramirez. She's only just learned that Helen and Kane had any kind of relationship, and she thinks that he's going to stay on her behalf, but Helen sets her straight. Harvey Pell spots Kane by the livery stable and tries to get him to just leave town already. They get into a huge fistfight, which Kane wins. Only one man has volunteered to help Kane, and that's Herb Baker, played by an uncredited James Milliken. When he learns that it's just the two of them, he bails out as well. Kane makes out his will as the train approaches. He steps into the street just as Amy and Helen ride by on their way to the station. Amy won't look at him, but Helen stares for as long as she can. Frank Miller, played by Ian McDonald, steps off the train and is greeted by his boys as the women board. We see Kane literally alone on the street. It is completely deserted. The Miller gang walks into town where Kane is waiting. Kane circles behind the gang on their blind side and he calls out to them. When they spin around, Kane kills Ben Miller. Amy hears the gunshot as the train starts to move, and she actually jumps off the train. She runs into town to find Ben Miller dead in the street. Kane gets caught in the crossfire, and he hides in the hayloft of a livery stable. Colby rushes the stable, but he gets shot by Kane, and the remaining two outlaws set fire to the stable, and they get ready to shoot Kane because he's getting smoked out at this point. The horses are starting to get frantic, so Kane starts to untie them, and then he gets an idea. He conceals himself by riding very low atop one of them in the midst of the stampede. So he does escape, but he also gets shot off his horse. Fortunately, he's only grazed. Kane hides in a small store as Miller and Pierce shoot at the uh, building. Uh, Pierce stops to reload in front of the marshal's office across the street, and he's suddenly shot in the back at close range. As he collapses... He reveals that it's Amy behind the shattered window with the gun in her hand. Frank Miller realizes what has happened and he goes inside and grabs Amy, taking her hostage and using her as a shield to approach Kane's position. Miller calls Kane out, threatening to kill Amy unless he shows himself. Kane lowers his gun and steps out. Now, Amy recognizes that Miller is about to kill her husband, so she spins around and she scratches his face. He throws her down. Kane quickly raises his gun and kills Miller. And the townspeople suddenly come out to surround Kane. Kane's wagon is driven up so that the couple can resume their trip. Kane looks around at all the town people with disgust and he drops his tin star to the ground and then he jumps on the buckboard and he rides out with
1: Amy. Okay, so. This movie is based on a short story called The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham. But that is not where we start our story. Our story begins with Carl Foreman, who had started out as a scriptwriter for monogram pictures doing B-movies for uh, the East Side kids. And then after the war, he got hired by Stanley Kramer, who produced this movie, and he wrote three movies before this that Kramer produced. Uh, Champion, which was Kirk Douglas's first big starring role. Home of the Brave, a movie I have not seen, but uh, was one of the early movies to tackle racism. And The Men, which was the debut film uh, appearance of Marlon Brando, playing a paraplegic ex-soldier, and it also was directed by the director of High Noon, Fred Zinneman. Now, Foreman had been a member of the Communist Party uh, back in the day, although he left and he had been wanting to write a film that was an allegory about the U.N. However, um, this time that The High Noon was made, which was in the early 50s, was around the time that blacklisting starting to heat up. And Foreman decided instead to write an allegory about blacklisting. So he decided to do it as a Western and wrote up a treatment only to realize once he and Kramer saw this story, the 10 star, that there were a lot of similarities between his treatment and the story, except for one major difference, which I'm going to come to a little later. And so they decided that discretion being the better part of valor, he and Kramer purchased the rights to the story so that they would avoid any plagiarism suits, as that was a thing back in the day as well, not just now. And there has been, over the years a lot of controversy about who was ultimately responsible for High Noon's success artistically, because apparently when the movie was previewed, it didn't turn out well, and there was some fixing in it, and all kinds of people have taken credit for that over the years. Kramer, who produced the movie, Elmo Williams, who edited the movie, and we'll get to how good a job he did a little later as well. Dimitri Tiomkin, who wrote the score for this movie, and even Tex Ritter and the folks who wrote that theme song, which I'm going to talk about uh, a little later, because it was thought that they all, quote-unquote, saved this movie with the music and especially with the appearance of the clocks, which are a way of showing how everything is playing out in real time. However, in a book that was written a couple years ago about the making of High Noon by Glenn Frankel, according to Frankel's research, the clocks were in Foreman's original script, and Fred Zinneman has testified to that in various interviews over the years. So there's no way that the clocks were put in to fix the movie. Now, undoubtedly, the music did help contribute to the movie, not just the theme song, but the sense of unease we feel throughout the whole thing but a lot of the elements that people took credit for for the movie including the clocks and the real time were in form and script which the clocks and the real time are part of what i think makes this movie so effective
0: yeah absolutely you know especially once you start to realize that because early on, when they when they when they make that shift, because early the, the, when as the film first starts, you're kind of not really there. But once they start moving into more of a real time feel, um, the you get a lot of shots of the clock. and so you are basically being trained to realize that we are moving in more or less real time. Because we would get the clock and then something would happen. We would get the clock right away and only a minute or two had passed. And then something else would happen and we get the clock again and again, only a couple of minutes have passed. So we realize that basically as the clock moves, the action in the film is moving. And so we are going to be on this ride with him the entire way. We're not going to lose anything between now and then.
1: Right. And to be fair to Tiamkin, he uses the chime of the clocks as well with the score or intersperses the score with the chime of the clocks very well, which also increases the tensions throughout the movie. Oh,
0: yeah. In fact, I would note that there are plenty of times, it doesn't happen every time, but there are plenty of times when the music is basically set to the beat of the pendulums on the clocks. So you you get that little bump, 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 bump as the pendulum moves back and forth.
1: Right. Now, Fred Zinneman, as I mentioned, um, he's the director of the movie and he would worked with Kramer and Foreman previously on The Men. Now, like Foreman, he started out making B-movies. I can't recall the exact title of it, but he made a movie, where Edward Arnold plays a blind sleuth who's helped by a dog. I think it's called Eyes in the Night or something like that. Yes, Eyes of the Night. And then he graduated to more A movies, such as a couple of World War II movies, The Seventh Cross and The Search. And then, as I mentioned, The Men and... Then he hit it big with his first Oscar-nominated film, Oscar-nominated for Best Picture, that is, High Noon. Now, Zinneman is not someone who is considered a flashy director. You know, he always saw himself as being in service of the script, which a lot of movie critics are not fond of that type of director and we'll talk about that um, in a mini episode we're gonna do but i think he does bring out the best parts of the script including the tension of the movie and he follows the You know, the standard tropes of the Western, on the one hand, the lone hero who has to face off against the bad guys, but he also pays attention to a lot of the other things that are going on here, the way that the town is caught between wanting to move forward and having to confront its past by dealing with Miller, the fact that a lot of people in town feel that Miller isn't such a bad guy to begin with and that Kane is uh, merely um, doing some kind of personal vendetta against him. And then also, though, things that were not dealt with in westerns in earlier years namely the racism in the form of helen ramirez's character and also the sexism you know she is a woman who may own a business but she has to have a man being the front for it and not only that although the movie by today's standards, could have gone deeper into this. She's also considered a second-class citizen because she is part Mexican. And the movie, and Zinneman and Foreman do a good job delving into that as well, for the time, of course.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, th- this, is, this is not... Um you know this 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 ain't miss kitty at the long branch saloon where you know she she gets this kind of equal billing uh as as the person who runs the thing and in fact they don't even refer to the saloon as a saloon throughout the film it's like she and sam keep calling it the store and it's not until you see one of the exterior shots that the saloon actually has her name on it uh so you know it's it's one of these kind of um kind of like the worst kept secret in town sort of, sort of situations. Like everybody's turning a blind eye to the fact that it's really Helen who's, who's running this show.
1: Right. And that's one of the good subtle things that Zinneman and Foreman and to be fair, Elmo Williams in helping choose which shots to put up are able to um, convey throughout the movie. Now, Another thing that is well done that you wouldn't expect in this type of Western or this type of movie in general is the relationship between Will and Helen. Because, you know, at first, when he shows up at her door, she assumes he's there out of jealousy over the fact that she's involved with Harvey or was by that point she's already dumped them but it turns out that he's just there to warn her about Hella, about uh frank miller which of course she knew about and all of a sudden you see the conflicted feelings in her you know that obviously she's not going to go back to will at this point but she still cares about him enough that She hopes that she doesn't get hurt. And she knows that he is doing the only thing that he can do at this point, which is to stand up to Miller and everyone else. And all of that is conveyed in the uh, final exchange the two of them have, when she says to him, "Kane, if you're smart, you'll leave town too. And he says, I can't. And she says, I know. And that also comes back to, that also goes uh, forward later in the movie when um, Helen is there with Amy in her room. And she says to Amy that, you know, I don't understand you at all. If Cain was with me or was my man, I'd get a gun. I'd fight with them. And then when Amy says, "And why don't you?" Helen says, "He's not my man. He's yours."
0: Right, and and so that's that's the the little tweak that we get that foreshadows, you know, what's going to happen later on. But we also get that 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 I don't I don't get the feeling that that Helen and Cain were together for an especially long time. But she seems to have a deeper understanding of him than Amy does because she's also able to say that. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it runs along the lines of, well, if you don't know why he's doing this, I can't explain it to you. And so she really she has that understanding. And what's more, she really misses him because they have that short exchange in Spanish, which basically translates to it's been a year since I've seen or since we've spoken. And he says, yeah, I know. And that's really the whole thing. There's, there's so much conveyed in those two lines and they're not even spoken in English.
1: Right. And I think the line is, um, if you don't know, I can't help you. Mm. But yes, that is definitely a sentiment that's Expressed very well there. Now, one criticism of the movie in that regard it has been that Kane and Helen have a lot more chemistry together than Kane and Amy. Now, it should be pointed out this was Grace Kelly's first film role first major film role kramer had seen her on broadway and she was always dissatisfied with this performance later in life calling herself uh, wooden in this movie and a lot of uh, people have agreed with her um william goldman in his book adventures in the screen trade once called her performance the most irritating performance she'd seen by a woman in any Western. I understand that to a point, but at the same time, you have to remember this is a character who doesn't really belong to this world. You know, she's a Quaker and she's against violence, not just because that's what they teach in Quaker, but because her family has been the victim of violence. So she is definitely an outsider here. And so I think it's kind of okay that Kelly is sort of awkward with Cooper and with everyone else in the movie because she does feel out of place. And I think she does a really good job in the scene with the manager of the hotel that uh, helen lives at where he's one of the ones who baldly states that he doesn't like her husband and that you know he thinks things were better before he became sheriff you know, I think she does some good acting there
0: yeah she she not only she she not only is is awkward there but she she's she's looking out of place in the sense that she looks different from everybody else like I, sh- I think she's the only one wearing white and so she basically stands out against yes. everybody else and and so it's you know she you don't really have any idea like she has no history it appears with anybody and she could have just like swooped in 2 days ago for all we know and and you know knocked Kane off his feet and now he's getting married and it's just this whirlwind romance and nobody 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 knows anything about her that, that that's kind of the way it feels so she is really set up as just this um you know fish out of water in this particular situation
1: right now i want to talk about The theme song, uh, before we get to the other actors here, this was the first movie that I'm aware of that wasn't a musical where a theme song was actually written for the movie describing the plot that was happening or at least describing the underlying themes of the movie. Now, after this song became such a hit, um, Frankie Lane did a cover version of it that was quite popular, Mm -hmm. among others. Theme songs in uh, non-musical movies became quite common afterwards. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tom Lair, who satirized this, in his song Oedipus Rex, his proposed theme song for the movie version of that play that came out in the 50s. In one of his albums, he did an introduction where he talked about theme songs for movies like the Ten Commandments Mambo, the Brothers Karamazov Chacha, things like that, because it had become ubiquitous by the time he had recorded that album, which was in 1959 or so. But the song does work, I think, because of the way Ritter sings it. He doesn't sing it um, overly melodramatically. He just sings it in a straightforward manner. And because I think for most of the movie, they do like a verse or at most two verses at a time that it's played throughout instead of just the whole song being played throughout the movie.
0: Yeah, that that's the case. And the other thing is you're not necessarily whacked over the head with it the way you might be in a more modern film. It's, 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 you can hear it, but it is not right up there in your face. It's actually being played kind of softly and and, uh, quite in the background, but it's, but it's there pretty low. But what I did find interesting was I did see somewhere and it might've been an IMDb that the, the, you actually were supposed to hear the song way more than you did, like almost twice as many times as you do. And it didn't test well with, with an audience and they realized that they're getting a little bit restless because they just keep hearing the song over and over again. And it started to be like, actually like a point of humor for the audience. So they said they, they, they basically they backed off and, and took out several instances of it.
1: I think they mentioned that in Frankel's book too. Okay. The fact that they, um, Originally, we're going to use the song more, but decided to cut down on its use as well. Now, let's talk about some of the actors here. Um, Gary Cooper, of course, won his second Oscar for this movie. And he had been one of the biggest stars in Hollywood in the 30s and early 40s. But in the late 40s, his career had kind of slowed down, which to be fair happened to a lot of actors who had been stars in the 30s and 40s. You know, he did make some movies that I thought were pretty good. He did a movie with Fritz Lang called Cloak and Dagger that is uh, really good, except they cut out the ending which makes it end sort of abruptly. But he also was one of those actors who was very careful about his image and therefore turned down parts that he didn't think were right for it. He famously turned down uh, the main part in Red River that went to John Wayne. And that was the movie that revitalized Wayne's career after World War II because his career, while not on the skids exactly, had also slowed down a little, even though he had been working steadily during World War II. But Cooper thought that playing a man that was hardened by revenge and hatred wasn't for him. And Wayne did an excellent job with it. And I can't help thinking what Cooper might have done with it. But any rate, at the time, High Noon was offered to him after being offered to other people, including Gregory Peck, who turned it down because he thought it was too close to the role that he played in the movie The Gunfighter, which ha- had come out a couple of years earlier. Cooper accepted the part. And... Cooper also is one of those actors who a lot of people think, oh, he doesn't do anything on screen. He's just there like a block of wood. And in Frankel's book, and also on the special edition DVD I have, there's an interview with Lloyd Bridges where he mentioned that He thought the same thing when he did a scene with Cooper, that here he is acting up a storm and Cooper's saying nothing or doing nothing. It was so he thought. Then Bridges got a chance to look at the rushes and he realized that Cooper was acting for the camera and Bridges was acting for the balcony. And once he realized that, then he realized what a good job Cooper was actually doing. And, you know, you see that in the movie, you know, Cooper's not a method actor per se, but you can see him internalizing the emotion a lot of time, the fear, the anger that, you know, he's made to do this all alone. And he does it very well, I think.
0: Right. And we've talked about this several times with with other actors who do pretty much the same thing is like if you look at them in, in certain isolated uh segments you you don't think that a whole lot is going on but when you put the whole bigger picture together you realize just how much they were doing by doing what appeared like not much and i'm going to cite specifically we've cited robert duvall a few times and most recently just a couple of weeks ago with lily tomlin and and that scene in, in in um in nashville where the camera is like slowly closing in on her and she's just doing these teeny tiny little things and it's just conveying so, so much. You know, Cooper can do pretty much the same thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now let's talk about bridges here for a moment. Um, I don't know about you, Claude, but I am of the generation that first got to see bridges in airplane. <laughs> so it was kind of a shock Seeing this movie and then seeing other movies he did before this and realizing, wait, he was a dramatic actor first, but, you know, he does a good job playing someone who thinks he's a lot more grown up than he actually is, which Helen, of course, calls him out on. Uh, early in the movie when, you know, she says you're an attractive boy, you have big, strong shoulders, but Kane is a man. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: uh, no, uh, Airplane was not my entry to Lloyd Bridges. I do remember seeing reruns of Sea Hunt when I was a kid. So I, I kind of had some some kind of handle on him, but it was kind of cool to see him, uh, you know, as this would have been like uh, what? Uh, about eight maybe years, something like that, uh, before before C. Hunt, Sea Hunt was like late fifties into the early sixties. So yeah, ish. And and so it was it was kind of cool to see that perspective of this this younger guy, you know, doing. I like seeing like you know well established actors in some of their earlier roles. It's just kind of fun to see stuff like that. So yeah, to to see him in the airplane films was was kind of fun because you know like Leslie Nielsen, he was doing that playing against type thing, and it worked out really well or well even if. Bridges character in the airplane films wasn't doing it quite as deadpan as Leslie Nielsen. So I don't think the humor worked as well for Bridges in airplane as it did for for Leslie Nielsen. But that's really another discussion.
1: Yeah, And I disagree, but yeah, let's save that if we ever get to tackle Airplane. Now, there's a couple actors that you did not mention mm-hmm. that we should. Uh, the actor who plays the retired former sheriff is played by none other than Lon Shaney Jr.
0: Oh, I did mention him.
1: <laughs> I don't remember that, but anyway, he... Um, You know, I mostly remember him from playing Lenny in the 1939 adaptation of of Mice and Men. Yeah. But he does a very good job playing this real defeated character who, you know, his heart is in the right place, but he knows he just is no help to anyone anymore. And then there's also um, Harry Morgan who plays one of the people who's there at the wedding at the beginning. But then when um, Kane goes to his house to try and drum up support... Um, You know, he hides behind his wife, who amusingly enough, the character's name is Mildred, who is the name of the wife of the character Morgan uh, played in uh, MASH. As yeah, well. I, was,
0: I was unable to find out just my quick research, whether that was a coincidence or whether that was homage. And I know you're a big fan of the series, so I was going to ask you about that.
1: Uh, I haven't seen anything to suggest that it was an homage. I mean, this wasn't his biggest known role before he took the part. And as a matter of fact, in the first uh, time we hear about Henry Blake's wife, her name name is uh, Mildred until it got changed to Lorraine uh, Mm. in a later episode. We should also mention that the actor who plays the judge... Although he's not as distinctive here as he would be in other movies, is uh, Otto Kruger, yes, who played a lot of villains and a lot of um, you know very upper class roles. Uh, one of, so it's sort of strange to see him in a western here. But I think he does a pretty good job. And then one last actor I want to mention is the great Thomas Mitchell, mm-hmm. who plays Kane's best friend, yet at the same time the, one, the mayor, but at the same time is the one who in the church scene orders him basically to leave town and to tell him to stay out of this. And it's a really telling scene because at first the way he's talking, you think, okay, he's going to come out and support Cain, but then he turns against them. There, not against them per se, but you know, he says, "Not get out of here. You should not be involved in this at all." And the way Cooper reacts to that as well is pretty telling.
0: It is. And and in fact, not only does he do that, but he, he basically directs the entire discussion because at that point you had, I don't know, maybe like half a dozen people who were in favor of joining Kane and helping him out, and a similar number who were like all oh, no way and he basically talked those people out of helping him, which is why he winds up leaving alone. Like the entire tide of the conversation turns after, after Mitchell's character speaks.
1: Well, not just people talking, helping him, people talking who are trying to shame the other uh, churchgoers into helping
0: them. Right, right, right.
1: But anyway, now um, I do want to mention a couple of technical here as well. All right. Before we In, do that, can we
0: do one more actor shout out? Because we did mention the character, but we didn't credit the name. Howland Chamberlain as that hotel clerk who had those snarky conversations, especially with Amy.
1: Right. No, he is uh, very good. And I was going to bring him up a little later ah. uh, when we talk about the blacklist. But first let's talk about the technical parts of the movie. Uh, Floyd Crosby did the cinematography for the movie. And if you'll notice, the cloud shots or the sky shots, I should say, that are done in this movie are especially fine because they really give the sense of how oppressive Uh, the mood in the town is throughout the movie. You know, I think they're a little bleached out or something like that. Yeah, he had the film, like, overdeveloped. Yeah, and it's uh, very well done in that um, respect. Now, um, he went on to do some uncredited work with Zinneman on From Here to Eternity, but this was the only other movies that the two of them did together. After this, he did a lot of TV and a lot of B movies. But a lot of the movies he did were Westerns. So I guess people who saw this thought, oh hey, he uh he would be good at shooting westerns.
0: Yeah, he did he did a fine job with this. I, I, I liked the 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 look of of like you know some people are like good at exteriors and some people are good at interiors and just everything everything looked really good wherever you happen to be he really managed to capture the mood and I'm sure he had something to do with the fact of of Grace Kelly like as I said earlier just standing out among the other people in the town
1: Now um I mentioned earlier about the short story the 10 Star while the names were changed, I believe, in, from the story to the movie, the outline of the story is pretty much the same, except for one instance. Um, there is a deputy who is in Arizona who i believe is tracking down another member of miller's gang or kane is trying to get word to him to come back and that was in the script but either because of budget reasons or they decided they didn't need it anyway they cut all that out and as far as i know there's no footage of any of that but I definitely agree the movie would have uh, been less effective if we cut away from the town at all.
0: Yes, indeed. And I think you should bring up, there's another uh, character who got mostly cut from the film.
1: Uh, Are you talking about the one played by Jack Elam? Yes, I am. Okay, yes. Because um, to put it mildly, Well, he plays the drunk who's in the jail cell when Will is in the office. And his scenes um, were intended, I believe, as a bit of comic relief. But they decided that that didn't really fit in with the tone of the movie either. Right. Part of which (laughs) is that he's a little funny looking. You'll have to agree, or at least he is in this movie.
0: Yeah, and so we we, we see very little of him. So we see him in the cell. We see him leaving the jail. He's being sprung by Gary Cooper right before the climactic battle. And I think we see him briefly going into the saloon, and that's about it for him.
1: Yeah, so, but as I said, I think... Having more of his character on screen would have altered the tone of the movie somewhat,
0: yeah, I'm not complaining, I'm just noting it <laughs> so
1: yeah, now, um Carl Foreman, unfortunately, after this movie uh came out, was blacklisted uh thanks to the folks uh the house of un american Activities committee, and of course um Unfortunately, as well, uh, or at least according to him, almost no one involved in the movie supported him in this. Uh, Kramer would say years later that the reason why he didn't was because Foreman had a letter that would have exposed Kramer himself as having been a member of the Communist Party. And so that's why he refused to support him. Uh, but it should be noted that, according to Foreman, the one person who was consistently in his corner was, surprisingly, Gary Cooper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because Cooper, i say surprisingly, he was conservative in his politics, although he was the first to admit he didn't really pay attention much to politics. And he had been a friendly witness when the committee first was formed, or reformed, I should say, in the late 40s. And they were originally going to do another movie together until Cooper got a lot of pressure put on him by his uh, right-wing buddies. And Foreman um, let him down easy, saying, you know, Coop, the fact that you've stuck up for me like this, that's enough you don't actually have to work for me. I will never forget this as long as I live. And so Cooper did bow out. And on the documentary that I have, as I said, on High Noon, um, I think it's one of Foreman's daughters who talks about how incredibly grateful Foreman was to Cooper for the rest of his life. And unfortunately, Foreman was not the only one who was blacklisted after this movie. Chamberlain, who we mentioned, was also blacklisted. And while Bridges wasn't blacklisted, he was, quote unquote, graylisted. Yeah. Ugly uh, things that happened uh, after this movie all around. But again, that shouldn't distract you from the fact that this really is a terrific movie.
0: It absolutely is. I, I, I loved watching this and and, and um, you, you will too. I promise. I don't care if you're a big fan of Rio Bravo, you will enjoy this one.
1: Okay. Oh, one last thing I do want to mention before we wrap this up. Okay. Um, there was a movie about the blacklist that came out in 1991 called guilty by suspicion uh, directed by producer Irwin Winkler and starring among others, Robert De Niro and in a rare Time acting in someone else's movie for a change, Martin Scorsese. And De Niro plays a director. And at one point, because he is not willing to name names, he gets shunted off to a Western that is supposed to be a B Western, but at the same time is clearly meant to resemble High Noon, complete with the fact that he shoots a scene where the sheriff throws his badge on the ground. Yeah,
0: there you go. So. Okay, one more piece of trivia before, before we go here. There's an actor in this film for whom this was his, I believe his ninth movie, and he went on to appear in one form or another in over 400 other films.
1: I believe we're talking about Lee Van Cleef?
0: No, I'm talking oh. about Sheb Woolley who is the source of the infamous Wilhelm scream.
1: Yes. Yes, you've mentioned that before. Yes. Yes. Okay, but Van Cleef, uh, although he doesn't say anything in this movie, he went on to be in a lot of uh, movies as well, including two of the sequels to... Uh, a fistful of dollars, which we talked about in an earlier episode. So Mm -hmm. I believe we've wrapped it up finally. So we're going to take a little break and then come back and talk about Rio Bravo.
0: Welcome to the third half of the show. How was your break?
1: It was fine. Thank you. How was yours? It was
0: very restful.
1: All right. So we have to give a warning here. Um, this was at the point of Howard Hawks' career, where he cared less about story than he did early in his career. But despite that, according to Claude, this is going to be quite a convoluted story to get through. So. Here he is explaining why when he talks about Rio Bravo.
0: Yeah, there's a ton of plot points here. Let me open up by noting that the entire first scene is done with no dialogue. Actually, same as, um, same, same as High Noon. Uh, so some of the character details I'm about to share, we don't find out until later on in the film. But we do open in a saloon in the Old West, somewhere in Texas. The uh, town drunk, a fellow named Dude, who's played by Dean Martin, enters through the back door. He's clearly desperate for a drink, so one of the men at the bar, who turns out to be named Joe Burnett and played by Claude Akins, is having a laugh at his expense. He pulls a coin out of his pocket and throws it into the spittoon. As Dude starts to bend over to retrieve it, the spittoon is suddenly kicked away by the sheriff, John T. Chance, played here by John Wayne. Burdett thinks this is funny, but Chance has something else on his mind. Dude stands up and whacks Chance with a piece of wood, knocking him out briefly. Dude then moves on Joe, but Joe's men grab him and beat him. Joe starts to move in on Dude, but another customer grabs his arm and he is shot for his troubles. Joe then strolls out of the saloon. He walks into another saloon and Chance comes in with his rifle at the ready. His head is still bleeding, but he's there to arrest Joe for killing the man in the other bar. But Joe has friends here as well because his brother is a powerful rancher in the area. A man gets in behind Chance, but Dude has followed Chance to this bar. He grabs a gun from one of the men and shoots the man's hand to protect Chance. Now Chance is able to take down Joe and bring him to jail. We learn over the next couple of scenes that Dude was Chance's deputy and he first climbed into a bottle about two years ago because of a woman who left him. After the incident in the saloons, Dude is reinstated even though he's still trying to dry out, mostly by drinking beer and instead of whiskey. The beer is enough to keep away the worst of the DTs but dude is still getting pretty shaky. The next day at the funeral of the man who Joe killed, a wagon train led by Pat Wheeler played by Ward Bond and his young helper Colorado played by Ricky Nelson rolls into town. Pat and Chance have known each other for a long time and Chance confides in Pat about the trouble in town. It's going to be several days before the Marshal arrives to collect Joe and Joe's brother Nathan is likely to make an attempt to break him out since he's got lots of land and lots of money and therefore has most of the men in town pretty well sewn up. Chance's only help at this point is Dude and his other deputy, a old crippled man named Stumpy, who is played for Comic Effect by Walter Brennan. Chance offers up some space near the jail for Pat to store the wagons while they're in town, but Pat points out that the wagons have a lot of oil and dynamite in them, so maybe storing them close to the jail at a time like this isn't the best idea. Chance agrees and offers a different space near the other end of town. A package arrives for chance at the jail. It turns out to be not for him, but for Carlos, the local hotel owner played by Pedro Gonzalez. Pedro takes Chance upstairs and opens the package, revealing it to be underwear that he'd purchased for his wife, Consuela. While they're speaking, they're teased by one of the hotel guests, a woman known to us only as Feathers, because she likes to wear them in her outfits. Feathers is played by Angie Dickinson. Later that night, Chance is at the jail with Stumpy and Dude, and Dude is clearly having some trouble with getting sober, so Chance suggests that they take a walk to patrol the town. As they pass the hotel, Carlos comes out to tell Chance that Pat has been asking people around town to help Chance out until the marshal arrives. Chance heads to the saloon where Pat is playing cards with Feathers, Colorado, and a few other men. Pat leaves the game and Chance tells him that what he's doing could get him killed. Pat offers to help out himself, but Chance notes that if Pat needs Colorado's help, then he's probably not going to be much help to Chance. Pat then hits on the idea of lending out Colorado to help Chance. While he goes to retrieve Colorado from the game, Chance toys with a deck of cards on the table and he notices something peculiar. Colorado isn't interested in helping Chance, and he'd just as soon mind his own business. Just before Chance leaves, Feathers wins another hand of poker. Apparently, she's been having a good night, and now she's ready to leave the game. Chance sends Dude outside to keep his eyes open and follows Feathers upstairs. He thinks she's been cheating at cards because the deck he saw had aces missing. He breaks out a wanted poster that describes a con man and his partner. There's a man downstairs who's also having a suspiciously good night, but he doesn't match the description in the poster. However, she does match the description of the partner. Feathers admits to being the partner, but insists she hasn't cheated. Chance is about to search her for the missing cards when Colorado comes in and says he thinks he knows who's cheating. They go back downstairs, and sure enough, the other big winner of the night has the missing cards. Chance tells Carlos to lock him in his room overnight and make sure he leaves town in the morning and his winnings will be split among the other players. Chance goes outside and finds Dude. They begin looking for Pat, but as they spot him, Pat is shot dead. Colorado wants to help catch the killer, but Chance tells him no. He and Dude follow the killer to a barn. Chance goes inside while Dude covers the doors. The killer gets out, but Dude got off a couple of shots and thinks maybe he hit him. What he does know is that the killer has freshly muddied boots and that he saw the man run into the other saloon, which they know is full of Nathan Burnett's men. This time, they switch tactics, with Chance covering the doors while Dude goes inside. The customers tell him that nobody's come in in the last few minutes. Dude disarms everyone and begins to examine their boots, not realizing that the gunman is on the balcony overhead. By now, Chance has come in through the back door, but he's just watching everything going on. The men start laughing at Dude, and one of them throws a coin into the spittoon. Dude is pretty embarrassed, and as he stands at the bar, contemplating the drink standing there, some blood drips into the drink. Dude spins around and shoots the gunman who falls off the balcony to the saloon floor. They find a $50 gold piece on him and realize that Burdett is hiring hitmen now. The men get taken to the jail. Colorado comes to the jail with some of Pat's belongings. Chance has to hold on to them until he gets a court order to release them, which includes all of the wagons. This leaves Colorado and some of the other men on the wagon train stuck in town with no money. Chance takes him on as a deputy and says he'll front the money for Carlos for the men to eat. Chance goes to the hotel and Feathers is there and she apologizes for being snotty to him earlier and they exchange their background stories. Her con man partner was her husband, but he got caught one too many times and he was killed for it. She's since gone straight, but she's hounded by the wanted posters. Chance says he knows the sheriff who's been sending them out, and he'll contact him to get them stopped. Chance spends the night at the hotel. He'd intended to be awakened at sunrise, but it turns out that Feathers was guarding his room and wouldn't let Carlos pass the door. So it's around 9 a.m. and Chance is behind whatever schedule he is set. But at least he finally got a good night's sleep. He berates Feathers for not letting him be awakened and tells her that she needs to get on the stagecoach out of town. Meanwhile, Dude is at the edge of town, collecting weapons from visitors that they can have back when they leave. Nathan Burdett, who's played by John Russell, comes to town with a bunch of men and they comply with Dude's order. They ride up to the jail and Chance tells him that he'll only let Nathan talk with Joe. They have a brief conversation and Nathan leaves. Stumpy asks why he let Nathan go and Chance explains that whatever they're going to do, they've already planned it. And if Nathan's in jail for the hit on Pat, well, then he has an alibi. We see Colorado sitting in the saloon when Nathan asks the mariachi band to play a tune. The song goes on for hours into the evening. Chance is curious about this, and Colorado notes that it's a tune called the De Gelo, a march best known for its use by Mexican buglers at the Alamo. Uh, It's a signal from Nathan that he is giving no mercy. Chance breaks out Dude's old guns and gives them to him. Dude remembered selling them off when he was at rock bottom, but Chance bought them from that man and kept them in good shape. Chance and Dude go to the hotel to give Dude a chance to take a bath and get a shave. While they're at the hotel, Feathers tells Chance that Carlos gave her a job at the hotel uh, bartending and doing whatever needs to be done. We hear a gun go off near the jail and Chance runs over. It turns out that Stumpy didn't recognize a cleaned up dude and took a shot at him thinking he was someone coming to break out Joe. Dude's ashamed as he realizes just how bad he must have looked previously. Stumpy is ashamed because he nearly killed his friend. The next morning, Dude is on watch again when Burdett's men get the drop on him and tie him up in a barn. They take his hat and his vest, and one of the men poses as Dude in the same place so that Chance, seeing someone dressed like Dude at the other end of town, won't be suspicious. Chance and Colorado are talking in front of the hotel, and Colorado goes inside for some matches when Burdett's men approach. They basically caught Chance with his rifle out of reach, and they tell him they want Joe. Now, Colorado is still inside. He sees what's up, and he tells Feathers to throw a flower pot through the window as a distraction. Colorado uses the crash to toss Chance's gun, and the two of them shoot the gunman Uh, chance finds dude who's ashamed that he'd been caught and says he wants to quit because that shouldn't have happened and he's really getting the shakes chance tells dude to go to the jail and wait for him and he'll be paid off he then tells the undertakers to bury the bodies and the town will pay for it the undertaker says not to worry about the cost because the men each had a hundred dollars on them Chance realizes that the price on his head has gone up. Feathers is, meanwhile, getting drunk after the recent events, and Colorado is sitting with her. Chance offers Colorado the deputy position, and he accepts it. Dude is sitting in the jail's front office and contemplating a bottle in front of him. He pours himself a glass, and we start to hear El De again. Dude pours it back into the bottle and notes that he didn't spill a drop. The shaking has stopped. He asks for another opportunity, and Chance gives it to him. That night, Dude and Colorado sing a little song because... Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson. They decide to take, uh, just take on a siege mentality and lock themselves in the jail until the marshal arrives. Chance and Dude go to the hotel for some supplies— Unfortunately, Consuela has been taken hostage by Burdette's men, and when Carlos goes into the back to get the supplies, he's taken as well. Chance and Dude, not knowing what's happening, go upstairs so that Dude can take a bath, and Chance can chat with Feathers, telling her that he won't see her for a few days. Now, because Burdette's men need Chance alive, if they hope to get Joe out, they set up a booby trap for him. They take Dude and Feathers hostage and say they'll exchange the two of them for Joe. Chance says there's no way Stumpy will go for that, but Dude bluffs that Stumpy is old and alone, so he won't have a choice. Three of the men lead Joe to the jail, and Stumpy manages to kill two of them, while Colorado wounds the third. Chance and Colorado run back to the hotel, but Dude is gone. Feathers is untying Carlos and Consuela. Chance tells Carlos to get in touch with Nathan to arrange a trade. Joe for Dude. The trade is going to take place at a warehouse owned by Nathan at the far end of town. Stumpy wants to help, but Chance tells him that he's good in close quarters, but he's too old and slow to be of any insistence in a wide open space like that. Chance and Colorado take Joe and they go to the barn at the far end of town across the way from the warehouse. The two men, Joe and Dude, begin to walk across the space in the exchange, but as they pass, Dude jumps on Joe and they begin fighting, ending up behind a wall. Meanwhile, Chance and Colorado are exchanging bullets with Burnett's men. Uh, Joe is knocked out and Colorado tosses Dude a gun. A couple of Burnett's men um, make it out of the warehouse and Chance realizes that they're trying to get around to surround them. They manage to shoot two of them, but there are still two more. Suddenly, some shotgun blasts ring out and the men drop. It turns out that Stumpy followed them after all. Chance is happy, but then they remember that Stumpy is close to the wagons, full of oil and dynamite, and maybe realize that's not a great place to be when bullets are flying. Carlos shows up to help with the gunfight. Chance runs over to Stumpy to warn him, but then they get an idea. Stumpy begins throwing dynamite at the warehouse while Chance shoots at it to blow it up. Stumpy's aim slowly improves until they finally hit the warehouse, blowing up a big piece of it. The remaining Burdettes and their hunchmen give up and are arrested. That night, everything is peaceful. Chance goes to the hotel to see Feathers, and as they embrace, she throws her tights out the window, which land on Dude and Stumpy, who look up briefly and then walk
1: off laughing. Okay, so while High Noon was not a big hit at the box office, it was a modest hit, It earned several Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. And as I mentioned, uh, Gary Cooper won his second Best Actor Oscar for his performance. And it was well-received by a lot of critics at the time as well. However, there were critics of the movie, and I'm not just talking about of uh, Grace Kelly's performance, and two of the biggest critics of the movie were John Wayne and Howard Hawks. Mm-hmm. Now, Wayne, uh, it was because of the um subtext in the movie about this being against uh blacklisting or against McCarthyism, because of course, in real life, he was in favor of having anyone who was considered red to be blacklisted. He was actually one of the people who, as he would say, drove Foreman out of Hollywood uh, when he uh, fled to England. But he and Hawks had another objection to the movie. Hawks thought the movie was technically well made, but both of them felt that it was wrong morally for a sheriff to go around asking other people for help instead of having to uh, do it by himself or only relying on people who knew what they were doing so that they wouldn't get killed. You know, that's the point of a line that Chance has in the movie, that he doesn't want well-meaning amateurs to uh, fight his battles. He only wants professionals. Now, my argument to that would be that this was hardly the only Western that came out before then or since where a sheriff was asking for deputies if he needed help to um, help to battle someone. Nevertheless, the result in the case of Rio Bravo, I believe, works very well. Now, as I mentioned when we talked about Stage Door, that Quentin Tarantino, among others, considers this the ultimate hangout movie. And while, as I said, I think Stage Door is, Rio Bravo is a very good example of a movie where you're just hanging out with the characters as opposed to following a story, yeah, I
0: think the the other objection to the film to to high noon was that the the townspeople were cowards, basically, you know, so it wasn't so much that the sheriff had to ask for help. it was that nobody was giving it to him and and that created a little bit of a problem. and then I also saw something about the the possibility that John Wayne was upset at that last scene where uh, Gary Cooper takes off his sheriff's badge and he drops it into the dirt. And some people are under the impression for some reason that he steps on the badge before he gets into the wagon, which isn't the case. But there are a lot of people who think that's exactly what he does and that there was an issue with that as well.
1: Wayne being one of those people. So... Uh, yeah, that's, uh, another time where he didn't get facts, let facts get in the way of what really happened. But (laughs) anyway, uh, but Rio Bravo, as I said, you know, this is a movie that takes its time. You know, you did mention that both movies start out with no dialogue, but for High Noon, that's during the credits and maybe a little bit afterwards, whereas with Rio Bravo, I think we're like five, six minutes into the movie before someone speaks.
0: Yeah, it is something like that. Again, I didn't I didn't time it, but but it is, it is quite a long time. And the other thing that that does for us is it leaves us, the viewer, a little bit confused about what's going on because... There was a point where I thought that maybe um, Dude and Chance were – and again, we don't know who they are at this point – that they were somehow working together and kind of scamming the situation just to throw Joe off balance and – you know, it turned like like doing this weird double cross kind of situation, and, and it turned out not to be the case. I mean, everything was really happening pretty straightforwardly.
1: Right. But it, it did show, as I said, um, Hawks at that point in his career uh, felt that um, stories were boring, for lack of a better term. There's a famous anecdote about when he... Was asking Robert Mitchum to be in El Dorado, which is pretty much a rehash of Rio Bravo, although, to be fair, a really good rehash. Mm-hmm. And um, he described to Mitchum, oh, it's going to be a Western, it's got John Wayne in it, it's got blah, blah, blah. And Mitchum said, um, and what's the story? And Hawks said to him, no stories, just characters. Stories bore people. You know, it was at this point that he was stretching things as far as he could go, with not having something that's so story conscious. Now, he didn't always succeed at that. Um, He made a movie after this called Hitari with Wayne as a leader of a bunch of people who are trapping animals in uh, Africa. And while that has an ick factor to it anyway... I think that was one case where he took the no story part too far. But in real Bravo, I think the balance is just right. You know, you've got the elements going on of something to follow here, but then at the same time, we've got the character development that works as well.
0: Oh, yeah, you 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 do. And and so it is it is very character-driven. And at the same time, there are many storylines going on. As you could tell by this, this lengthy synopsis that I had to do, there's just so much going on and you don't, necessarily recognize that because you're so engrossed in, in what everybody is is doing. So it's not like an Altman kind of thing where, you know, you've got several stories that are running in parallel. These are all kind of intertwining with one another in one way or another. And the characters do interact. And, you know, they don't just happen to be occupying a similar space. They're in the same space. And, and at the same time, everybody's just got so many of their own little things going on that it does become just as much story-driven, I think, as it is character.
1: Right, and that was a Hawks trademark. Another Hawks trademark is the fact that he used a line in this movie that was used in a couple other of his movies. The scene near the end where Feathers says to Chance, I'm hard to get, John T., all you have to do is ask me. Um, Angie Dickinson was not the first actress to utter that line in a Hawks movie. Jean Arthur says that to Cary Grant in Only Angels Have Wings, which came out in '39. And then uh, the most memorable reading of that uh, line, I'm hard to get, all you have to do is ask me, in my opinion, was from Lauren Bacall in her film debut, To Have and Have Not, where she says that Tom Free Bogart. Now, Dickinson, I do think, does a good job of saying it, but yes, that's something that hawks would do from time to time, uh, reuse gags, reuse lines. Now, you know, people in this day and age get on script writers like Aaron Sorkin when he reuses a line, uh, in a movie or a TV show, but let's not forget directors do that as well. Right. And, and, you know,
0: I guess the question is, is it, you know, and and it might be just different motivations depending on the director. Is it, you know, just force of habit? Is it motivation? Is it superstition? Is it, you know, something else? I don't know. Six to five and pick them. Right.
1: Right. Now, another trademark of you uh, you we talked about or you mentioned the musical performance uh, that's done with uh, Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson, and you said it was because of having Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson in the movie. They actually sing two songs in the movie. One is My Rifle, My Pony, and Me, um, and then a ballad called Cindy, which Walter Brennan also joins in on. Right. Now, you might think that this is simply a way of cashing in on having two musical performance performers in the movie, and I'm going to talk about both of them a little bit uh, later. But, in fact, if you go through Hawks's filmography, While he's only done two musicals, A Song is Born, which is a remake of his own, Ball of Fire, and "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is best remembered for Marilyn Monroe's iconic performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, he liked having musical performances in his movies. I mentioned to have and have not Lauren Bacall, contrary to urban legend, performs a couple songs in that movie alongside Hoagie Carmichael. And she also sings Tears Flow Like Wine in um, The Big Sleep. And Barbara Stanwyck, although she's dubbed by someone else, uh, mimes performing Drum Boogie alongside Gene Krupa in Ball of Fire. So... Throughout Hawks's filmography, he'll have these musical performances. Now, granted, they're not as anachronistic sounding <laughs> as the songs performed here, but they are effective. And I think the the first time I saw this, I have to admit, I was too focused on the anachronism, but after watching it a couple times, I got used to it and now it's an enjoyable moment for me.
0: Yeah. I was actually okay with my rifle, my pony and me. It was, it was like, you know, I, you know, I could, I could at least see it as being like of the genre, if not necessarily of that time, you know what I'm saying? You know, Cindy was definitely like a little bit more of a rock and roll type song. And I was like, uh, that this one's a problem for, for me, but you know, okay, we'll we'll get through this. <laughs> so.
1: Right. Now, another characteristic of Hawks movies is he made his movies about people who were good at their jobs and didn't indulge in sentimentality. You know, the best compliment in a Hawks movie that anyone could pay. Another character is that they are professional, or in this case, good. You know, when um, Colorado turns down Chance's offer to help out at first, or when Pat puts Chance up to asking him, Chance actually respects the fact that Colorado doesn't want to get involved and that he knows his limitations, and that he's good. And he also comes to respect his gunfighting ability and the fact that he doesn't do anything reckless, unlike Pat, of course, which gets him killed, and um, other people in the movie as well. That Hawks puts a high premium on professionalism throughout his works. And then another thing about Hawks' movies is they aren't very ostentatious. There's not a lot of camera movement here. Uh, the costumes in the movie, while they are sort of true to the Old West, it's not like they're you know, ostentatious about that as well. You know, these are, you know, what looks comfortable, what looks good in a color movie. That seems to have been the uh, guiding force behind them. There's nothing that stands out about any of that. He doesn't want you to pay attention to that. uh, He just wants you to pay attention to the uh, characters and the dialogue and the story.
0: Right. I mean, you know, if if you were one of those people who looked really carefully, you would be wondering why, you know, Ricky Nelson's hair looked like that, why none of the men had facial hair, you know, why so much of the clothing appeared to have, like, you know, modern manufacturing look to it, you know. But basically, you're you're engaged enough with these characters that you're, you're willing to overlook most of that, really.
1: Right. And getting back to the dialogue, another thing that, came out in the best Hawks movies, including this one, is what he used to call three-cushion dialogue, which is a term uh, from playing pool. Um, This is also known as oblique dialogue, where no one is really saying exactly what's on their mind. They're just sort of hinting at it, and it brings you in because you're left wanting more. And Lee Brackett and Jules Spurzman, who are the credited writers on this, although, of course, Hawks did um, oversee some rewriting on the set, they've worked with Hawks a lot before, and they're very good at writing that type of dialogue. You know, Hawks uh, always uh, brought up as an example, uh, instead of having a character say to his uh, wife or his uh, lover, I love you. Instead, if he's a coffee lover and she makes coffee for him, um, he'll say, you know, you make great coffee, which is a way of saying I love you. And... You know, that line that I mentioned before, I'm hard to get. All you have to do is ask me is a good example of that type of three cushion dialogue, because it's Chance's way of saying I love you without actually coming out and saying it.
0: Right. And then similarly, we actually get attention called to it toward the end when, um, when Chance threatens to arrest Feathers. And she says, "I thought you were never right. going to say it." And he's like, "Say what? Right. Well, that you love me." I said, "I'd arrest you," you know. Well, it means the same thing, and you know that. So, so it's we get that kind of that one's kind of handed to us. But there are a lot of there are a lot of moments in this film where where they're having a little bit of fun with the dialogue, and I'm thinking also about the um, the 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 scene in the morning when um, Chance is talking to Carlos and explaining, like Carlos is basically trying to explain that feathers never got on the stagecoach. And they have this weird back and forth. And Chance just isn't letting him finish his thoughts. And so he keeps interrupting. And Carlos has to keep backing up and starting over and and, and coming around till finally he says, no, she didn't get on the stagecoach. But it took like a minute and a half of dialogue before they got to that point.
1: Well, actually, that leads to the one part of the movie that I think doesn't hold up as well. Really? And that's the treatment of uh, Carlos and Consuelo. You know, I think the actors both do a good job with what they have, but I do think there is a little of the stereotypical portrayal of Mexicans or or Mexican-Americans in movies at the time. And they're made often to be figures of fun rather than... um, three-dimensional characters i mean there it's not the worst portrayal but and i will admit the first time i didn't really pick up on that but after watching it again recently i have to admit i was a little bothered by that
0: well i think i think consuelo who by the way is played by um estelito rodriguez i didn't mention that during the synopsis um I think she is a little bit, you know, kind of cardboardy. I think Pedro comes off just a little bit better, if only because he does appear to be a resourceful guy, even if he is speaking in kind of a, a stereotypical fashion. Um, he, I mean, he is a business owner. He's got this hotel, but at the same time, he has the ability to 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 feed and to house a bunch of people, and that that he is able to outfit. Uh, you know, chance with the materials that he needs for the siege that he'd been planning and, and you know, actually shows up toward the end with extra shells. And they're like, look, I'm here to help, you know, even when nobody else did. So he he does come off as a little bit more of a heroic figure than, than we would typically see.
1: Yeah, I will concede that. But um, moving on to the other actors here... Um, Dean Martin was actually not the first choice to uh, play Dude. Uh, Montgomery Clift was, but Clift had worked with uh, had worked with Wayne and Hawks on um, Red River and did not get along with either of them. And also, he was having a bad time in his life at that point because. You know, he was still messed up from a car accident he had gotten himself into a few years earlier. So he actually suggested Martin, who had worked with him on a movie called The Young Lions. And uh, the story goes that Martin came in to meet with Hawks looking bedraggled, and then he apologized to Hawks, saying to him that he had just taken a red-eye flight from Vegas because he had been doing a music gig there. And Hawks hired him on the spot because, as he said later, anyone who would do that is definitely a professional and the type of person I'm looking for. Now, Martin is another one of those actors who um, didn't always get the credit he deserved. I mean, to be fair, he didn't take acting or anything except singing very seriously. And late after he started appearing in movies, the only types of movies that he actually put in any type of work on were Westerns. And Rio Bravo was his first Western. And while you might think at first that he might be a little too modern for this, he, I think, works well in the role of dude. You know, granted, you've got the fact that his character is supposed to be an alcoholic and Martin had a legendary drunk persona at the time and afterwards, which probably helps. But I think he does a good job in all the dramatic parts and all the comic parts of the movie as well.
0: Yeah. I like the job that he did. And, and, you know, especially as, as somebody who is trying very, very hard to get sober and you there, there are like those times, like especially early in the film when, uh, when he first goes into the back of the bar and, and, you can see like there's that desperation in his eyes as as he is looking for, you know, the opportunity to, to get a drink. And I I think he he carries a lot of that off very, very well. Just just you know that that feeling of being antsy and and having to to deal with the, the the idea of just having to dry out. And um I you know the I the only thing I didn't really buy and it's not his fault would be just that he would that people had him looking different, you know, before and after is like, I didn't see a whole lot of, you know, if, if he's the town drunk at the beginning of the film, I don't think he looked remarkably different after getting the shave and the bath that, that, you know, to the point where, where Stumpy wouldn't recognize him and actually take a shot. You know, he looked too good at the beginning for the town drunk. But other than that, I mean, the, the way he behaved as, as, as a, a, an alcoholic trying to become sober I I was absolutely bought into that.
1: Right. Now, before I talk about the next character, I have to insert the fact that um, Rio Bravo, commercially anyway, was sort of a comeback for Hawks. He hadn't made a movie since Land of the Pharaohs which uh, was a big box office disappointment and is, in my opinion, not one of his better films. And he had been watching a lot of TV at the time, which also was a motivation for making this movie because there were a lot of Western TV shows being made. But that sort of put his eye on the big TV star that appeared in this movie, and that was Ricky Nelson. Now, uh, this does involve one of the great what could have been stories. The part of Colorado was first offered to none other than the king, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, of rock and roll, Elvis Presley who wanted to do it but colonel tom parker either said no or was asking for too much money or it was a combination of the two and uh, so he got uh put out of the picture and so it was nelson who got cast and according to the imdb trivia page on this hawks didn't really think much of nelson's performance in this although he admitted that um, it did add to the box office having him in the movie. But while certainly he's not up to the level of the other actors, I do think Nelson acquits himself well as a gunfighter and uh, someone who knows how to take care of himself and someone who acts like a professional.
0: Right in in general even though he is you know kind of young and not quite a hothead but he's he's kind of anxious to jump into the action maybe at the wrong time sometimes but he does know how to generally keep his cool he knows what to do and you know he he yeah I think he did do it well I think the other thing about Elvis was that Parker insisted on top billing for for Elvis and that was definitely a no go when yeah. you got John Wayne in the film
1: Yeah no absolutely Now um Hawks, unlike a couple of other directors we've talked about and other directors we'll be talking about later, was not someone who was known for um, a, um, like a production posse, for lack of a better term, or at least um, having a uh, cast that he would always use from film to film, like Preston Sturges or Frank Capra. But there were quite a few actors who did work with him a lot, one of them being Walter Brennan. And uh, Brennan, by this point, is more playing comic relief in this movie than he did in earlier movies he did with Hawks, like uh, Red River or um, Come and Get It. Although he did play a sort of comic relief character in to have and have not there's also a sadness about him because his character is an alcoholic whereas here he's strictly speaking a comic relief character, but he has some good byplay with everyone in the movie
0: he does he He gets along with everybody they all seem to like him for one reason or another and you also feel general regret, even though he is still kind of teetering on that comedy thing. When he accidentally almost kills dude, and he is just there, there is you can hear there's some despair going on there.
1: That like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Right now, um, of course, we're saving the elephant in the room until last. Uh, you know, these days, of course, you have a lot of talk about can you separate the art from the artist? And that is uh, especially tough to do with John Wayne. You know, I think Jean-Luc Godard put it best when he said, how can I hate Wayne for supporting Goldwater and yet love him when he picks up Natalie Wood at the end of The Searchers? (laughs) You know, I don't think that's a... um, that's a dilemma that I'm ever going to resolve. I will say that when he's on, he, although he may not have the biggest range in the world, he knows how to play the parts that he's in very well, especially when he's working with someone like Hawks.
0: Yeah, actually, where, where I thought you were going to go with this. I mean, I get that. I mean, and and yeah, we're always going to have that, that, some version of that discussion, but where I thought you were going to go. And this is one of those other things that kind of, you know, squicks out modern day viewers of the film. And well, we saw it in high noon too, is just the difference in age between the lead character and the love interest. And in both of these films, it was roughly the same difference.
1: Right. Although um, in high noon, I think the characters were written Um, a little bit to reflect that. Um, That was also why they cast Lloyd Bridges opposite uh, Gary Cooper when his character was supposed to be much younger. Uh, But, you know, I will say that while Angie Dickinson was criticized a lot for her performance, that she, I think, does a good job. And I guess... Because she comes off as pretty mature, even when she's, her character is doing immature things. It didn't bother me as much in this movie as it did in El Dorado, when he's even older and, she's, and the actress who is playing opposite him in that movie is either around Dickinson's age when she was in Rio Bravo or maybe even a year or two younger. So that didn't bother me as much here as it did in El Dorado. And then also you have to remember that back in the 50s, it was uh, standard operating procedure.
0: No, you know, I, I get that. And it was probably even not especially uncommon in the 1880s. To, to have that that kind of age difference be, between, the uh, I was going to say between characters, but between actual people then.
1: Right. Now, one other thing I want to bring up uh, before we wrap this up, unless Claude has anything else he wants to add, <laughs> is that um, these movies share a composer. Dmitry Tiamkin wrote the music for this movie as well as High Noon. And apparently, in looking at um, the IMDb page, they almost also shared an actor. Uh, Sheb Woolley uh, was supposed to be in this as a cowboy, but his scenes got cut out. Now, his was not the only part that was cut out. Uh, Harry Carey Jr. was cut out as well, uh, apparently because um, he called... Hawks by his first name on set, and that was a big no-no. But anyway, so anything else, Claude? Well, once again, you know, you can
0: like both. I, you know, given a choice, I think I, I liked Rio Bravo a little bit more. I think it was just a little bit more of a, a fun ride in general. Um, but these are both, both fantastic films, and you should, if you have not seen either, or if you've only seen one over the other yeah go go make sure that they are both you know somewhere in your rear view at some point because these are both a ton of fun and great movies
1: whereas i slightly prefer high noon over rio bravo but i agree they are both excellent uh movies and uh, as far as watching them both movies are readily available to uh watch on DVD, uh, I would definitely go for getting the two disc versions of both of them because they've got some awesome special features on them, but if uh, you would prefer to watch them streaming, High Noon is available to rent or buy through Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, and most other streaming services, whereas Rio Bravo is available to stream if you subscribe to HBO Max and is available to rent or buy through most of the other streaming services.
0: Right. I don't know if it was just my particular experience watching this, but the captioning on Rio Bravo is a little bit weird. You actually lose the last letter of most every line which is kind of interesting because then you have like characters who speak like they're dropping the last letter of their words. And I thought that the captioning was following along with that. And then I realized, no, there's just a weird glitch in my captions.
1: Okay. Well, that might be true about if you're streaming. Um, <laughs> it, I didn't have that problem with my DVD. But anyway, uh, coming up in our next episode, it's part two of our You Can Like Both series. And we're jumping back to 1946 with the two uh, major movies that were released in December of 1946, The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler, and It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra. And The Best Years of Our Lives is available to stream through Amazon Prime, Canopy, And uh, Pluto TV, if you don't mind the ads, and is available to rent or buy on Amazon, Apple TV, and a couple other places, whereas It's a Wonderful Life is available to stream as well through Amazon Prime, as well as uh, the Plex Network, and is available to rent or buy through Amazon, Google Play, and other places.
0: And we would tell you to watch it on NBC, but it's, you know, warm weather right now. So you're probably not going to be able to do that.
1: Right. And uh, our show has a Facebook site. So please visit that uh, often. And you can reach us if you have a question or comment uh, on that Facebook page, as well as through email at wordsandmoviespod@gmail.com. And you can find me, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And how
0: about you, Claude? Well, you can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call. And you can also check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. And don't forget, the uh, our show has its own Twitter feed. It is words underscore movies pod.
1: All right. So thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thank you very much, Rebecca. Please take us away.
1: This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bobbing along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows? Maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening.